This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Lauren. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Great to be back. Yeah, I know. Dr. Ray, good to see you too. Good to see you too. And we have Liv doing our Twitter feed. Is that working? Is something working? Yeah. No, it's working. That's good. Anyway, we've got an hour of science for you folks. We're going to start off with some news. Dr. Lauren, are you are you ready? Do you remember what to do? I, I sort of do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it has been a while. Um, it's actually funny. I got completely sidetracked. So for those of you who don't know, I've, I've um, been on maternity leave for a little while. I've got a little four-month-old boy. Mm. Um, and so I started reading the science news yesterday and got completely sidetracked. And my husband said, you know, it's due for a feed. I'm like, yep, yeah, just give me five more minutes, five more minutes. And So, yeah, I had about 20 <laughs> stories that I could have done. <laughs> Yeah, as important as the show is, feeding your child might, well, yeah. I don't know, you know, I think it comes above. I, that, yeah. that is what my husband said. He's like, yeah. maybe we should prioritize a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah cool. Wait, I, did, wait, I did feed the child. I, I was gonna, can you do both? Oh, <laughs> can that's you true. read? Well, anyway. Uh, yeah, oh, wow. Multitask. Hang on a second. Uh, <laughs> You're going to change my life. She hasn't changed a bit. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's funny. Someone was saying the other day, oh, you can blame baby brain for your dippiness. And I'm like, no, I've just always been dippy. Yeah, I've, <laughs> Nothing's changed. But you do know some good stuff. I do know good yeah. stuff, yeah. I make up some good stuff. Um, but uh, this this one really appealed to me, actually. It's, it's a study that's come out of a group in Japan, the uh, Doshisha University looking at animal behaviour. And the reason that this really drew my, drew my attention is I love the fact that we are still learning so much about animal behaviour and things that we didn't know. And this study was looking at rats um, and actually found that rats can use tools. So, you know, think about animals that can use tools and you think about obviously humans and, and monkeys and things like that. Mm. But this study actually looked at um, just standard eight uh, brown rats and they put them in a box and they used them, uh, they trained them to use a small hook to pull cereal that was out of their reach. So they basically had to hook the cereal and pull it towards them. What they, that's, you know, kind of cool, but what gets even more interesting is they actually then gave them choices of different tools that they could use for that task. So some of the tools had a hook on the end, some of them didn't, some of them were soft and floppy, some of them were hard, and the rats actually went and chose the correct tool 95% of the time so that they could drag the cereal towards them. So it's sort of, um, they're basically saying that this is showing that, you know, the rats understood the spatial arrangement between the food and the fact that they needed to pull it towards them and that they could then implement and use a tool um, that, you know, we obviously didn't think they would have been able to do. Uh, the interesting thing with this paper I was reading as well is that, that they're saying, you know, we're learning obviously more about rat behaviour, but apparently rats, well, we now know, can display empathy. Uh, rats like to be tickled which sort of freaked me out a little bit. I think we've, all, we've always known that. <laughs> yeah, a little tickle. Yeah, it just it seems a little bit strange to you. I, I didn't know that. Most animals yeah. like a tickle. Yeah, true, true. Yeah. Uh, and rats can feel joy as well. So all these things about rats that I didn't know. Oh, yeah, they're a bit more human than we thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. But apparently um, alligators and even fish have this ability to use tools to do certain tasks in their environment. So, you know, again, it's sort of that, you know, questions, I guess, the general ideas of intelligence and animals that mm. some of us might have. We, mm. we, we seem to be seeing more and more of this. The, um, I mean, it was in the news, so I decided not to do it as news, but with the, the bees that were learned which string to pull on. Yeah. Mm. Now, yep. now, I find that it doesn't surprise me that bees are smart like that and training, training 
other bees, but this is a little bit level beyond that because it's going up to a set of tools and going, no, I want this one. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That, that's yeah. that's one one step from having the rat having a little tool shed and yeah, yeah. Hmm. Well, that's it. And yeah. about you know, because and they you know even being able to work out you know. That some of the tools were hard and could actually do the task of pulling the cereal, and some of them were soft and floppy and couldn't. I mean, that's it's pretty amazing that they mm. can work out that difference. Yeah, no, it's cool stuff, and it also mm. brings in all those question, philosophical questions around consciousness and what that means. Yeah, especially with all the artificial intelligence stuff. And there's three or four people at the moment running around the world saying that the world's going to end because of this. And mm. there's obviously some big issues to to deal with in that space. Mm. You know, once we get to a point where we create a true artificial intelligence, mm. but if you think of the difference between what I consider my consciousness, and I've no, I've got no way to really determine that you are, mm. but I I feel that I am. Mm. How does that compare? So that that's that's sort of what we're trying to achieve in in yeah. you know a, a silicon environment. Yeah. But how does that compare to the consciousness or otherwise of, of a rat? I mean, maybe we've already well and truly exceeded that mm. in the silicon environment. And and what does that mean? It's it's mm. a difficult it's a difficult space. And if we create an intelligence that's greater than our own, what does that mean for us? Yeah. Do we become the rats? Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No. Keep it's, up at um, night. <laughs> yeah. I do. <laughs> Doctor Ray, what do you got? For uh, Doctor Shane, I um I actually have an interesting study on algae. Plankton. Sorry, I'm just gonna. Go, yeah. That, is that a complete sentence? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so um, that's, that's the end. <laughs> the, no, no. This is a this is a neat story about um, plankton blooms. So um, this is in in springtime. You you end up with blooms of lots of plankton in different parts of the ocean. And this is researchers from the Oceanographic Institute in um, Woods Hole have actually have this really interesting 10-year study where they've been tracking the algae bloom actually in a region just off Cape Cod. Mm-hmm. Now, it's neat for the one of the big punchlines is they've been tracking when this algae bloom occurs and then fish come and eat the algae, um, and, and they've noticed it's actually shifted with global warming. It's actually happening earlier and earlier because it, and they've correlated it with ocean temperatures. Now, why that's kind of interesting is it's really hard to measure algae blooms mm. over time because you have to measure the same spot in water over and over again over a long period of time. And, and to actually measure it, how they did it is kind of cool. I'll get to that in a second. But to actually, there's very few studies in the world that actually have a long time frame mm. to study algae. And why we care about this, particularly for plankton, about 50% of the world's CO2 that gets fixed is actually through plankton. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So understanding its growth can have a really big impact on why it's growing and then why does it go away? Because you have a bloom and then what makes it go away? Mm. And, and actually how they measure this, this is wild. They use what's called a flow cytometer and it's out in the ocean at this little linked buoy. So this is a highly sophisticated piece of lab technology used in biological and medical research for sorting and counting cells. So really sophisticated piece of equipment, not exactly designed to sit in the ocean and have mm-hmm. biofilms through it. And they were, it were really clever about how they did this to be able to run it continuously for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And they have great temperature data over a hundred years. So they were actually able to, to really look mm-hmm. at this. Um, but the funny thing is, why were they doing it off the Cape Cod? It's not the most climate change sensitive area, but they're still seeing shifts in algae bloom because of climate change. It actually turned out it was because the buoy needed power and there's a internet cables. Oh, let's go around. So. I, thought was, I thought you were going to yeah. say it's because they've got really good wines in the region yeah, yeah. and the scientists wanted to hang out in Cape Cod. Yeah. But. They couldn't use solar power? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, they also needed communication because they're yeah, solar. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, silly question. So, if the, with global warming, um, and you were saying that it, it's, it shifts the time of the algal 
things. Yes. Does it also in, like change the amount, like the, how long it goes for and how wide the bloom would, would reach? Like, are we getting more of those blooms as well? That's a good question. I don't think they know too much on... Um more frequency. Yeah. But it's still, I think, about the same length of time. But mm. what they're trying to understand is what makes it go away because they think it might be predators and things eating it. Yeah. And they reckon that's going to affect the ecosystem. But they're still trying to figure that part out a little bit. Hmm. Mm. Interesting uh, stuff. Now, uh, I should uh, give my apologies from uh, last week. I do have to apologize to the European Space Agency for um, being unduly negative about the approaching Mars mission. That being said, it did crash land on the planet, so, mm-hmm. so <laughs> it right. wasn't so far off. <laughs> um, look, it's, it's, it really is um, bad luck because I think um, that you can you can do a bit of a search on Google and you'll find some maps that show all the different missions to Mars and just how many of them have failed actually mm-hmm. over the years. And in fact, NASA's been pretty much the only real go in terms of ground-based stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. there's quite a few things in orbit. And to give um, the Europeans their their due here, they did get the um, Trace Gas Orbiter which was the sort of mothership into orbit, and that's doing its job, and that's communicating and doing well. But the Shia Pirelli Mars Lander, um, which was just an instrument package that they were designing to get down to the surface and do some measurements, unfortunately didn't make it. Well, it made it to the surface, um, but it didn't quite make it in the way they wanted. And they were using one of those. You may remember when Curiosity rover was put onto Mars, they had that elaborate process of um, thrusters and mm. um, parachutes and so forth because the Mars atmosphere is so thin you can't just use a parachute system you've got to use something else to slow the descent mm. and so that was the goal but apparently the thrusters shut off too early and then it reached a terminal velocity of some 300 well, I think mm. it was something more like four or five hundred kilometers yeah. per hour. So it, it hit the ground pretty hard yeah. um, they, they were still hoping they may get some signal from it and so forth. Um, NASA have uh, one of their orbiting satellites has determined its location, and you see these pictures, and this this sort of blob doesn't mm. look good. Yeah. Um, but it seems as though that's um, it's a done deal for that one, which is a real shame because this was the testing mission for all of the types of technologies required to mm. later put a rover down. So in a sense, what has been a, a fraught mission from the get-go, you know, this has been delayed and delayed and delayed, mm. has now got a big delay ahead of it, which is really unfortunate because I think the more the more nations involved in the exploration of space, you know, successfully, the better. Mm. So, yeah. Well, it also shows it's just exploration of space is not easy. Yeah, and it's bloody and, I mean, NASA slammed one of their landers into the into the mm. Mars ground, mm. and they did that because of a unit's error. Yeah, uh, <laughs> on acceleration. I mean, I- in fairness, it was such a complicated unit's error when the New York Times tried to explain it. They yeah, also they got it wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, even if you get the units right, it's still really yeah. hard. Mm. Yeah, and these are environments that you know we haven't well mapped. We don't know them well, um, and they're they're you know they're testing these things. I mean, there's a reason they didn't send a rover. They are mm. testing it. And you learn a lot from the test, even if it's unsuccessful. But it is a shame that the that the exact scenario that they were going to use for a rover landing was not successful, yeah. so that's a shame. Um, now, another piece of news I wanted to mention, which I thought was pretty cool, I saw this week, actually, was um, uh, a geophysicist named Amy Lin at the Kyoto University in Japan um, published this in Science over the last week, and that was um, back in April uh, in Japan, there was the uh, Futagawa-Hinagu Fault Zone, 
along which there was quite a substantial earthquake that propagated. Um, this was a 7.1 earthquake, which is pretty pretty nasty. Mm. And it travelled about 30 kilometres, and then it stopped. Mm. Now, these things don't stop. You know, earthquakes, they, they propagate for a long time until they dissipate over time. But this particular one, this fault line, lines up with a volcano. And so the the earthquake basically got to the volcano or the magma chamber underneath this this volcano and was dissipated by this uh-huh. this magma chamber which is real I mean the the chance of actually seeing this anywhere in the world is actually really really low yeah. just to have have things line up Yep and so the question is now, what, what does this mean? Because yes, it's dissipated this earthquake. That's great. You know, it stopped it. Fantastic. But it, what's unknown is what it's done to the magma chamber because an earthquake dissipates an incredible amount of energy. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe, maybe relative to the amount of energy in this magma chamber, it's not a big deal or maybe it is. And they just don't know at the moment. So they're, they're concerned that this may lead to a difference in activity levels from the the volcano in question, mm. but it's the first time we've ever seen a, a, an earthquake dissipate in this way That's with the volcano, which is it's pretty cool stuff. You have to, be, you know, it's one of those things we have to kind of be looking in the right direction. Although I will say, seismologists have a lot of things looking in the right direction all the time, so <laughs> you know it is pretty good that they will pick that up. So was it an, an active volcano anyway? Like, was it the volcano? Is it a risk of going? Well, no, I think I, uh, this particular volcano, I think, is sort of one of those ones that ha- has had activity mm. in, in recent decades, but is not currently, you know, blowing yep. its top. So, sure. so it's not like the volcanoes in Australia. Yep. Um, it is, it is an active, um, mm. region of Japan. And, and, you know, it, when, when you sit along a fault, a series of fault lines between two tectonic plates, yep. um, I just think your whole world's active. Yeah. Um, That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, New Zealand, Japan, you gotta look at these places. In fact, folks, if, if you want to do this, it's, it's a great, thing to google um if you if you google or or any other search provider (laughs) um google two different maps okay Mm -hmm. google map of um map of tectonic plates and then in a separate search google map of earthquake activity Mm -hmm. and you will find these two maps overlap almost (laughs) exactly Mm -hmm. with the exception Mm -hmm. of a couple of spots near newcastle Um, (laughs) basically you know it's the incredible overlap of of information which says to you you're going to get a lot of big earthquakes right where the the, the connections are between the tectonic plates and mm. it's the, the map is quite extraordinary mm. so it's great to look at so look those two things up and um, print one out on a you know piece of acetate or something and put it over the other one it looks fantastic it's great for kids to have a look at just what makes the mm. world tick underneath the ground triple Uh, you are listening to 3RRR, it's Einstein at GoGo. I'm Dr. Shane, and in the studio with us now is Associate Professor Mike Lawrence from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research. Mike, welcome to RRR. Thank you very much for having me, Shane. Now, you're working on this um, amazing... Well, we're going we're to have to unpack this a bit because you're, you're looking at ways to essentially develop new therapeutics for diabetes patients. So Absolutely. Well, let, let's just start there for a moment. I mean, what are the current therapeutics and, and is there a problem with them? There's a range of therapeutics. It depends at what stage of uh, type 2 diabetes you're at or type 1 diabetes in yep. particular is needing insulin right from the word go. Um, but in the late stages of type 2 diabetes, insulin remains the only therapy mm-hmm. as you need to replace that within the body. But insulin, as you know, is... Um, is not an easy thing to take. Patients have to inject themselves or they have pumps, um, and it's really quite an onerous task. Um, And so the issues of compliance in terms of adequately being able to maintain blood sugar. So it's 
Insulin's been around for almost 100 years now as a therapeutic for diabetes, type 1 diabetes in particular. Um, and so there's always been this question, can we do something better than insulin or mm. make insulin into a better therapy itself? So that's the area in which I'm working, but really doing some fundamental science on how insulin itself works. Mm. So that's the underlying basis of um, this discovery regarding cone snail insulins. Mm. Now, before we get on to the snails, I mean, the, the way in which we've done this, I mean, it came from pigs originally. Um, that was the, the main source, wasn't it? Uh, pigs and um, cows, yeah. Right. And, and what about now? I mean, when, when people inject themselves with insulin, is that a, a sort of artificial form or, or what are we um, using Absolutely. These are made recombinantly from um, either bacteria or yeast in large fermenters. Um, so they making them that way. There's uh, you can achieve a much higher level of purity. You can also then um, move on to do some modifications to them to produce um, therapeutically better insulins. Mm. Yeah, um, I'm really glad you you brought that up because insulin in in those forms is you, you make it in the fermenters. It's actually quite a lot of steps after that to get the insulin out of the fermenter and keep its activity and conformation. And, and in, in the chemical engineering process, it's actually quite a lot of steps to get that going. And and, and there's different forms of it, as, as you mentioned, and some are more effective than others. And, and it's it's a very optimized process, but it's still one that's a little costly. Is, is that correct? Um, yes, absolutely. I don't think we're going to change that radically. Um you know, the drug companies that do make insulin, they make them on very large mm-hmm. scale. Um, and insulin does have all these problems of storage. Um, it's reasonably stable, but, you know, you have to keep it in the fridge. And it will be stable in the fridge for a period of time. Difficulty arises with insulin, particularly, for example, in a, a third world context where um, you might want to, you know, people might not might need access to insulin but don't have the um, facilities to cold store it. So that's mm-hmm. a whole other area that is of interest to us. Mm-hmm. Now, Mike, uh, you, you're bumming around and you, you, you see that there's some marine cone snail um, that has a venom that can solve this problem for us. I mean, I mean <laughs> talk us through this because I'm, I'm sure you were just sort of wandering on the beach and, and hey, that, that would be, there's the solution right there. I mean, how did you get from A to B to C here and look at this yeah, particular snail? That's a bit of a long story, Shane. Um, it actually, we didn't discover it ourselves, but our collaborators in the University of Utah discovered it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's been long interest in Australia on the venoms within cone snails, and so there has been collaboration between Australia and... Um, and the University of Utah, where a lot of this work is done. Um, so at any rate, uh, at the beginning of last year, um, 2015, the Utah group discovered this um, that within the venom of these cone snails was a molecule that looked awfully like insulin. Mm. Uh, and that was um, very surprising. It had never been seen before. Um, so to cut a long story short, um, of course, they had the Australian connections. They knew about our earlier work on insulin's interaction with its receptor so they came to us and said can you help as it were to figure out what this insulin is about because it didn't really look like human insulin in some ways mm. um so we dug into it a bit further um we tried to we crystallized it we obtained a crystal structure of this insulin in uh, at the australian synchrotron um and to cut a long story short it really looks this insulin looks like an insulin that um would be deemed to be hyperactive so to speak okay. um, it looked like the type of insulins that um, pharmaceutical companies have been trying to make um, to be a very fast acting insulin hmm. 
so that that was very surprising because uh, it was known in the pharmaceutical world that you you can't actually make an ins- a human insulin like this. So the question was, well, how does this cone snail insulin work? Mm. Uh, because we haven't managed to get one like that in the uh, pharmacopoeia mm. before. So that was um, how we tackled it, um, and really were quite surprised to find out the key, as it were, to how this venom works. And do we know, it seems odd to me that this, this particular molecule would be in with the venom. I mean, what purpose does it serve for the, the cone snail itself? Right, so what it does is the cone snail's got like a big snout that encompasses the fish mm-hmm. uh, and it injects it into the water. The fish absorbs it through its gills. Um, and then the fish goes into, basically the fish gets this radical drop in blood sugar right. and stabilises, you know, just stops swimming so much, yep. which allows the cone snail time to eat it. Right. Uh, and all of this obviously ha- has to happen quite quick because the fish is moving around. The snail is not moving nearly as fast. Um, but the fish is now in this hyperglycemic shock state, uh, waiting to be eaten, so to speak. The diabetes attack. <laughs> yes, mm. yeah, exactly. So it is, it is fast acting in that sense. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So if, if they're um, getting injecting into the water to make that fish slow down, I'm assuming it's quite a lot of it as well. Like, do they produce a lot of this compound? Um, no, it's not a great deal. Okay. Um, but the, the absorption through the fish gills is really a, a very efficient process. Mm. Um, so it's really capitalizing on that. Mm. Mm. Okay. Now, Mike, why is it so important that we we have a fast-acting form. I mean, w- one of the things I've noticed, you know, my father's diabetic and you know, he takes something in the morning and something in the afternoon or in some, some medical scenarios you have one, one injection a day. There's, there's a whole range of different cycles. The thing that's always made me wonder is why we don't have a scenario where my glucose levels are monitored and the insulin is delivered in real time as a result of that. Is, is that what we're trying to get to? Or? Uh, effectively, yes. Um, I mean, a, a diabetic patient would need to inject insulin um, sort of 15 minutes before a meal mm. to, to, to um, give sufficient insulin to cope with the increase in blood sugar. Um, so th- that's a period before. That's an inconvenience. It right. raises issue of compliance patients mm. you know because you don't want the blood sugar to either drop too low or to go too high um so w- what this would offer in in our view would be um because it is um so fast acting um it would reduce the time significantly between injection before meals to actual eating mm-hmm. yeah and in in terms of the process now i mean what, what's the next step to be able to use this. I mean, as you mentioned, the pharma companies haven't managed to make this type of molecule in the past. Mm. Presumably they're going to have to not only replicate it, but also purify it to the point where they can, you know, put it into humans. I mean, what, what happens now with this molecule? Well, really, we, we not, uh, there's no, there would be no attempt to actually use that molecule itself. It would okay. likely cause an immune response in the body. Mm. So what we're really looking at is to take a human insulin and to embed within the human insulin the principles that we've discovered within the cone snail insulin. Okay. Um, so this, um, this, in our view, would require um, you know, a handful of modifications that we can see are the key elements in the cone snail insulin and then make a human insulin that has got those particular properties. Hmm. So that's what we're working on at the moment together with our Utah collaborators is um, going back and making these coninized, so to speak, not humanized, but coninized 
human yeah. insolence. Is there a renewed interest now in in similar marine creatures that you know use this sort of attack on on their their prey and looking back and uh, saying what what other ones have have similar things in? Them? Yes, absolutely. Um, we're looking through. Um, a whole suite of these insulins. It's not the only one that the cone snail has. Mm. It has another one. In this particular cone snail, the other species that produce um, the other species that produce insulins as well. And those insulins are different to the ones in the cone snail that we're working with. Uh, one, one of the fascinating things about this, if you look at the um, from an evolutionary perspective, these insulins are not the insulin that the cone snail itself uses right. for its own metabolism. Right. So that the cone snail has got its own insulin. It's separate from this insulin. And if you do the genetic analysis of these insulins, the venom insulin actually looks a lot like a fish insulin, right. not like a cone snail insulin. So, so it's evolved to attack so the it's fish. It's evolved, particularly mm. to attack fish. Uh, and that's really quite a fascinating angle, you know, just amazing yeah. how evolution works with these Fantastic things. Fantastic stuff. <laughs> Look, I, you know, uh, Dr. Ray and I are both uh, major aquarium keepers and, and uh, absolutely love any of this stuff because we think it's just it's just fascinating how much is down there that we just don't know about and the complexities of it are, are extraordinary. Mike, thanks, um, thanks so much for talking to us today and, and good luck with this work. It would be great if we can, you know, really uh, make some progress in terms of the various types of insulin available. Shane, many thanks for having me. Thank you. Associate Professor Mike Lawrence is from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research. Three, triple, Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. In the studio with us now is Professor Paul Webley. He's the director of the Peter Cook Centre for Carbon Capture and Storage Research in the CO2CRC Capture... Uh, he's also the CO2CRC Capture Program Manager. I'll get it all out. Hang on. Department In the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering at the University of Melbourne. Paul, did I miss anything? I think you got it all, Dr. Shane. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> but you're doing some great stuff. That's why we wanted to have you have you on the show. Um, but this, in the last uh, week, I assume, the new $7.56 million carbon storage research facility has been launched, yes? That's correct, Dr. Shane. Yep. A, a, a very exciting launch. A lot of uh, publicity, a lot of press. Mm. Uh, to open some really nice new labs in carbon capture and storage. All right, now let's go through what, what's, what's the facility there to do? Okay, so the primary aim of the facility is to do research around capture and storage of CO2. Mm -hmm. So this is the whole process of capturing the CO2, transporting it, storing it. has a lot of R&D issues around it, mm -hmm. and, uh, and this funding is really setting us up at Melbourne Uni to be probably the leading... Uh, CCS-related research organisation in uh, probably in Australia. Okay. Now, when we talk about capture here, we're, we're not quite talking about extraction, are we? So you're, you're not looking at just extracting CO2 from the atmosphere. You're talking about capture from Capturing from, from particular processes. So any kind of... Uh, CCS is, is agnostic to the source of CO2. Mm -hmm. So capturing it from any source, it can be power plants, it can be uh, cement plants, it can be steel plants, any any source of CO2. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, give us an idea of what's required. I mean, if I've got a, a power plant that's mm. pumping, you know, we've seen all seen pictures of these, mm. although usually the pictures have steam. Um, but we, <laughs> is that right? Think, yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah. um, but Still, still, I think the imagery is appropriate. Yeah. You know, it's it's, it's coloured for yeah. your for your satisfaction. Um, what what's involved?
involved in capturing that? Mm. I mean, I have this image of the big pipe just going, you know, into a vat somewhere, but that's that's, no, that's no, not no. quite well, it. Well, it's it's a little bit more sophisticated than mm. that. So what we have to do is we have to, to clean the gas first because mm. uh, there's always some contaminants in there. Yeah. And then you have to um, contact the gas with the liquid. Okay. And the liquid is some special chemical liquid that you uh, you either have to fabricate or, or buy. Uh, the liquids then soak up the, the carbon dioxide. You then have to transfer the liquid to another container, heat that liquid up, and that's where the energy cost of, of CCS comes in, mm-hmm. to evolve the CO2, which is now in a pure form. So typically a power plant is around 12 to 15% CO2. Mm-hmm. Uh, pure, pure, uh, 100% pure CO2 is what you get out from the capture plant. And by the way, the capture is about 70% of the cost of the whole CCS equation. Right. The other 30% is compressing it, transporting it, and storing it. Mm. Now, let, let's, let's talk about the technologies for capture because mm. it, it, I mean, sounds relatively simple when you, you talk yep. about them in relative to other, yep. you know, some, some of the processes in the, in the petroleum industry, for example, are quite detailed mm. in terms of what we can get out of various petroleum or oil products. Yep. Um, what, what is difficult about doing this? I mean, what, why are we, why are we still so challenged? Why, why do we still need the yeah. research? A couple of things that one of the biggest uh, uh, issues of CCS is the scale. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure uh, everyone is aware of the scale of, uh, of CCS and the scale of, of climate change. So we've got plants producing 10,000 tonnes a day of CO2. Yeah. We've never engineered things on that scale. Right. So we've engineered them on small scales, and we've been capturing carbon dioxide for you know, 50, 60, 70 years. Mm. But capturing on, on such a large scale is very, very challenging from a cost standpoint. Mm. So most of the research is looking at driving down that cost. Okay. So we're looking at better solvents. Uh, can we find waste heat to use to regenerate? Can we use um, solar energy to regenerate the uh, the solvents? Mm. Um, and then completely different technologies. Can we look at membrane technologies to separate out the CO2? Can we look at adsorbents to separate out the CO2? Mm. So the second, third generation of, of technologies. Yeah. And once you've got it, uh, I mean, where do you put this stuff? As you say, there's a scale problem here. So we're talking Correct. about a large amount of material. Correct. What are our options? So the options are you can try and use CO2, but to be honest, the uses of CO2, the market for CO2, uh, while important and we keep working on that, are so much smaller than the amount of CO2 we produce. So we mm. produce uh, uh, gigatons a year of CO2. Uh, the market for it is, is of the order of millions of tons. So mm. the only thing we can really do is, is transport it and then find appropriate storage places to store the CO2. And uh, it's stored deep underground, two, three kilometers underground, uh, in, in, in form- appropriate formations. Uh, and that's really the the whole picture. Mm. Now I want to talk about that part because to mm. me, as soon as I hear about the idea of pumping this stuff underground, I think mm. a lot of things can go wrong. Yep. Uh, I mean, how how well how well advanced is the knowledge of these subsurface layers and the ability to com- keep them contained yep. over protracted periods? Yep. I mean, how are we doing with that? So, so that's a really good question, Dr. Shannon. That's probably foremost in people's minds, and, and the Peter Cook Centre actually has a storage lab as well. Mm-hmm. So it's not just to develop new capture technologies, but can we uh, really understand what happens to carbon dioxide when we put it under the ground? Uh, does it migrate? Where does it migrate to? What size are the pores in the rocks down there? So we've been injecting CO2 for 20, 30 years, 40 years maybe. Um, uh, people probably don't know, but there's 15 operating carbon capture and storage plants around the world. Mm. Um, the first one was started up in 1996. It's been injecting for 20 years, a million tons of CO2 a year. So we have a good database of knowledge of what it does. 
Uh, we know how to do all the geology very safely before we even consider a site, and not all places can be used. Uh, this is not a, a pool of CO2, you know, lying beneath your feet. Mm, this is yeah. three kilometers, two kilometers down, uh, dissolved in the pore space of a rock, eventually reacting to make carbonates. Right. So uh, we're, we're convinced that in the, in the sites we've identified, it can be very, very safely stored. Mm. And in terms of the storage time frame, I mean, is this, this is a permanent storage permanent. mechanism. It's a permanent so storage. It's permanent storage. It becomes Thousands part of, of the rock. Yep. Yeah. becomes yeah. part of the rock. Yep. It, where are we at in terms of the cost? You, you mentioned the cost effectiveness mm. of this. Where are we in that space because it seems as though as with everything around climate and mm. and carbon and so forth at the moment if it isn't half the price we won't even try it type attitude yeah. um where, where are we there are we close we, we are we're very close so as i say there's already 15 plants operating around the world we have um, the latest plant is Petronova in Texas, which will start up in a couple of months' time. Uh, the costing there, and that's probably the most, most realistic number, is around $100 a tonne. Mm. So that's capturing it, transporting it, and storing it. Um, the next plant will be 30% cheaper. Uh, first, of a, first of a kind plant is always more expensive. Right, you over-engineer yeah. everything. Yeah. The next one uh, we have on, on reliable uh, uh, evidence will be 30%. So that's not $70 a tonne. And then after you've built uh, half a dozen of these more, uh, you're down around $50 a tonne. So at that point, we're starting to look very, very promising mm. as, a, as a retrofit operation. Mm. And you mentioned uh, quite a few already in operation around the world. Correct. How limiting is the geology for this, or is it such that we could do this in almost every country in the it world? Is, it is limiting. It's not for everywhere. Um, you obviously have to, uh, if you find an appropriate site and your source of CO2 is not nearby, you have to transport a long way. Mm. So it isn't for everywhere. Uh, we happen to have some really good places in Australia for that. Um, but mm. currently in the, in, the, um, in the US, there's a lot of places, uh, typically things like uh, depleted gas wells, for example, yeah. make ideal locations for, for CO2 storage. So locations where stuff has been stored Stuff has before. been there already. Yeah. <laughs> yep. In fact, many <laughs> cases, CO2 has been there before. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, right. and we're essentially putting it back in. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it's fascinating stuff, Paul. And I think, um, you know, the more we hear about research money going into these spaces mm. where we, we can actually start doing something. I mean, I think there's, mm. there's a lot of rhetoric around at the moment, but these sorts of programs where you're Correct. actually making these things happen are fantastic. So good luck with the continued work. Congratulations on the new um, the new funding and the new centre or facility being being opened. Uh, we expect big things and we'll get you back here in a couple of years to hear about the solutions. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Professor Paul Webley is the Director of the Peter Cook Centre for Carbon Capture and Storage Research and the CO2 CRC Capture Program Manager in the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering at the University of Melbourne. You're listening to 3 it's an exciting time to be on radio because it's Sunday. <laughs> we, uh, anyway, Best day uh, of the week. Sorry, I was just making stuff up and it was the only thing that popped into my head. <laughs> um, now, I, I mentioned uh, back, I think it was January, February, that I was uh, my summer reading this year included a book called Longitude, um, which I managed to get from, you know, there's this group called the Folio Society and they put these books in really nice, um, mm. very old style bindings and so forth. It's a beautiful book. Yeah, and oh. I've bought a few of these over the years and, and, and most, I have to say, all of them bar one I've absolutely loved. I've thought they've mm. been really nice. And the one that I really don't like is, um, Darwin's on the evolution of the species. Oh, really? I think it's, it's really, the binding's really just 
tacky and oh, awful. No. Um, but all the other ones I've got of them have been just absolutely fantastic. So, and my wife's bought a few of these. Anyway, this one's called Longitude, and it's by Darva Sabel. And it's basically the story of how, or the history, really, of how determining longitude came about. And it's really about this one guy, John Harrison, who was working very hard on, on clocks and mm. making clocks. So what I wanted to do first is just give people a bit of knowledge about latitude and longitude, mm-hmm. why one's really problematic and why one is actually quite easy. So latitude's something that people have been measuring basically you know, for over 2,000 years. It's been around for a long time, and it's pretty easy to work out. And latitude, remember, is essentially how far you are from the equator towards the pole. So the easiest way to determine that is to just have a look at the midday sun, Mm-hmm. work out how high it is, and if you know what time of year it is and so forth, you'll be able to say, well, okay, I'm at this latitude as a result. And that's been um, done for a, for a long time. There are a lot of tables and charts and so forth around the sun. Also, at night, of course, the star Polar- Polaris was used a lot, which is fine, unless you're in the southern hemisphere, in which case you might want to use something else because we can't see that star. Um, that's the, you know, the famed North Star. But there's been um, versions of doing that, um, you know, even some of the, so the Greeks, um, Marinus, um, did it in sort of 70-ish AD. It was pretty common. He was the sort of first to use latitude. Um, they designed a whole range of things. Some of them were a, a stick to look at the shadow. Others were measuring angles. All these things around latitude were pretty easily done. And, of course, the one that people probably remember or have heard of before is the one actually that was originally discussed by Isaac Newton, and that's the sextant. And that's the one that people still use to this day, you know, when they can't be bothered pulling their phone out and looking at their GPS coordinates, um, which, by the way, folks, is your latitude and longitude, if you're, if you're wondering what those numbers are. Um, but the sextant was um, used to determine your position above um, or from, from the equator. So this is all, all stuff that's been pretty easy. And so all you really need to know is the height of a a stellar object from from the horizon. Easy stuff. Now, longitude is your position around the globe. And and unlike um, latitude, where you you have a clear starting point, being the equator, Mm -hmm. longitude doesn't have a clear starting point. Not one that we all share. Now, we do today. We have a a location Mm -hmm. in Greenwich, which we say is zero degrees but quick question how did we choose greenwich doing well it's historical i mean it's it's one you know england did rule some things that's kind of like why is english so prevalent yeah Yeah, true true okay it was a popular time of the place (laughs) and to be honest you know the the royal society in england put a lot into determining the issues around longitude and they put prizes up and so forth for for determining it and so you know they had some control Control. militarily blah blah blah. um so there's there's a long history there which we'll do in another episode dr long yeah um but but longitude is a bit different because let's take a simple example of me sitting in um, Melbourne and you sitting in Perth. Mm-hmm. Now, we obviously have a difference in our longitude. Mm-hmm. We have a very similar latitude, actually, but difference in our longitude. The question is, how do we work out what our longitude is? Now, I can pretty much walk to you by land and work out the exact distance and calculate my longitude. So that's one mm-hmm. way of doing it. But that that's not very effective, mm-hmm. especially if I don't know where Perth is to start with, right? Yeah. So that kind of assumes I know where you are. Um, what, what I need, though, is to be able to work out. I can do it via the stars and so forth, but I need to be able to work out the time. Mm-hmm. So I need to know what time it is in Melbourne and what time it is in Perth mm-hmm. at, at these various um, two locations in order to work out, well, you know, if the sun rises in Melbourne at 7 a.m. 
and it rises in Perth at 9am, oh, well, I, I, I know my di- difference between these two times and I can work out the difference in longitude for these two locations. Mm-hmm. Of course, I have to be able to transport my clock from one place to another. And if you think of pendulum clocks and so and many of the types of clocks you used hundreds of years ago, mm-hmm. this is not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. And there was never any sort of sounding signal on radio or anything that could be used to, to track time or location. So mm-hmm. this was really problematic. Now, on, when you're on terra firma and you're on, you know, you're on land, mm. it's actually, funnily enough, it's actually relatively easy if you think about it because you can actually transport the clock from one location to another or you can work out the distance. Mm. So you're traveling through Europe, you can work out the distance and work out what that approximate longitude is. Mm. That all sounds great. Um, but what if you're on a boat? Mm. Mm. Yeah. So you think about this. A lot of the, you think of your old grandfather clock, mm. right? Now mm. whack it on a tinny. Yeah, <laughs> drive yeah. it out into the bay. Um, I hate to say it, folks, but things aren't going to be uh, heading in the direction right. you might want them to. And so the idea of actually working out time on a, on a on a seafaring vessel was an incredibly big problem. And, and and this is where this whole book is essentially around the story of this guy John Harrison. So. Think about what you've got to do. Dr. Ray, you have a question. So, yeah, I have a question. So you've talked about pendulum clocks, but this mm. is in the time in history when watches had to be wound, that they didn't keep time, that, yeah. that there wasn't, it wasn't like a, you could buy a watch that now might keep time for a day mm. or two if mm. you were still winding it. That yeah. The mechanical components they were making things with couldn't actually keep time where uh, an ocean voyage is yeah. more than a day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they they couldn't have a clock that could keep time right. for weeks on end. Yeah, weeks or months. And and remember, too, in the ocean, you have high variations in humidity and temperature. Mm. So most of the clocks that were around at the time, if you changed the humidity or the temperature, mm. they had to be corrected. They mm. needed, um, needed to be modified and changed. And so the idea of having a clock on a moving boat mm. that was able to handle all these differentiations in terms of the environment, it, it just wasn't possible mm. back then. So there were a few options that people came up with, and they, they always seem to come back to astronomy and the stars. So there is actually an object in the in the sky most of the time that is an amazing clock. Do either of you know oh, what oh, that oh, is? Oh, yeah. It's made of cheese. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, well, actually... I was going to say the moon. Actually, the funny thing is, the moon is great, but remember, you're on... So you'd have to work out its height and position, mm-hmm. and you're on a, a rocking boat. Ooh. Mm. So again, we're back to that problem. So in fact, Galileo had a pretty neat idea, and you may remember there are four of Jupiter's moons oh, named yeah. after him, the Galileo moons, mm-hmm. that have a very regular orbital cycle. Yeah, I mean, yep. well, all, all orbital things do. Um, but if you knew what that was, you could actually use this effectively as a clock in the sky. Now, oh, you know, this is not a bad thing mm. uh, until it gets cloudy. Mm. Oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. It yeah, never until, happens out on yeah. the ocean. And it never happens near England. <laughs> I mean, let's be, you know, it just does not happen in the Atlantic. Um, so, you know, there's, there's some beautiful aspects of astronomy in that here that can be used. And the, the most common one was actually if you had a table of astronomical events. So, for example, when is the moon going to have a conjunction or, in, you know, go in the sky close to um, one of the planets? Mm. Well, this actually happens reasonably often, but not over days. It happens over months. Mm. And so if you knew those locations, every few months you could work out lo- your longitude. Again, you had to be able to, you know, see them. So it had to happen on a night when it was clear skies. There's a lot of issues with this and it's very problematic. So the, the whole idea of using the sky as your clock 
for longitude is kind of bad because if you're not on terra firma, your ability to grab a telescope and poke it up at these mm. things and look at these things accurately is very, very low. Not to mention the fact that you really need to be very skilled to make these sorts of measurements. So not all of the people who are, you know, going on these voyages had the capabilities to make these sort of measurements, which was very problematic. So the the story really takes a major turn when we start talking again about clocks and the idea of keeping accurate time. And, in fact... There was a there was a whole series of um, awards essentially um, put out by the UK or by by, London, by the British government um, in something called the Longitude Act, and this was put out in 1714, and it was essentially the awarding of a very substantial financial prize for anyone who solved this. And so into the world of this um, particular award scheme, this guy John Harrison, who was a you know self-educated clockmaker basically, mm-hmm. but, you know he he made clocks. And he was trying to put forward the idea of this clock. The panel that was determining whether this award should be given out were essentially all astronomy people mm. from the Royal Society. So, you know, Get, you, you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, I, I think the astronomy version, this is crap. I've got this clock. Um, and so you can imagine how that went down. Um, and so this story is this amazing story about this man's life and his sort of ongoing push to develop a clock Mm. that could be used could be stable and could do everything needed to determine longitude at sea Mm. and when you look at the there's some great pictures in this book of um of the clocks that he designed and they are the they're almost just majestic in their Mm. their their complexity and you think wow and that was kind of what led to later you know clocks being designed Mm. in such a way that you you know fog watches and so forth in such a way that you got accurate time at sea so having actually read that book as well one one of the things that amazed me was use the word clock and the first one he developed looked like a clock Mm. Mm. um it wasn't quite a pendulum clock it had a lot of compensation and springs, yeah, but it yeah. still looked like a clock. By the time he evolved to the, the later models, because he made, I think, four, Yeah, it was interesting that they didn't call them clocks anymore. They called them chronometers. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Keepers uh, of time. Keepers of time. Yeah. Because it, it, you know, it kind of looked like it, a very large plate-sized pocket watch. Yeah. Or as, uh, as I, I thought of it, if you if you were to miniaturize a petrochemical camp uh, yeah. plant, it kind of looked like you know it had the complexity yeah. uh, of all these springs and gears and so forth, but quite an incredible complexity. Mm. Well, and, and the the things that he needed to compensate for materials at the time didn't really exist. He developed mm. things mm. to compensate for expansion and humidity mm. in springs in ways people had never thought of at the time. Mm. Mm. Self educated. Yeah. So anyway, it's um look uh, I'm not sure Ray you can give me your opinion as well but this this was a to me a really great example of something that we discussed with Amy Shira Title when she was on the show just uh, a month or so ago and we were talking about her book uh, her new book um called Breaking the Chains of Gravity and she indicated that she wanted to write a book that was about you know the history of rocket making but didn't read like Encyclopedia Britannica mm-hmm. so you learned about the people you learned about their strategy, you learned more about them and having read that book now you know she did achieve that it's actually a, it's a great read i think this book is the same it's it's more about the person than the science mm. but from from understanding the drive of these individuals you learn 
you learn the science through the book. I mean, what, what did you think, Ray? Did you like? I, I found myself rooting for Harrison <laughs> or cheering for Harrison. Excuse me, um, uh, cheering for Harrison with the Longitude Act as as it was going along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you, you did make a connection to the. Yeah. So the, the anyway, it, um, I'm sure you can find it in all good bookstores or online. Um, but it's 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 a great read, and I really enjoyed it. And hopefully, um, you have a better understanding of longitude and latitude now, folks. Uh, or you can just grab your phone and <laughs> there's heaps of apps. Um, yeah. But we we take it for granted. We really take it for granted these days how hard this stuff is. Mm. And back back in the day, um, there was people, you know one guy in particular and his son who literally spent their entire life mm. trying to solve this one problem that we have an app for. Yeah, think it about is that. Yeah, it's amazing progress. So. <laughs> Anyway, on that uh, deep note, we're uh, we're out of time. Dr. Lauren, great having you back. You're back now. I'm back. I'm You're back. fully back. Back in the living world. Yes. That's great. No, it's great. Yep. And um, congratulations again on your little Thank Charlie. Thank you. Thank who, um, you. hopefully is, I think he's manning the phones. Yeah, I think, yeah, pretty yeah. much. Um, we're training him up yeah. early. Training yeah. him up. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ray, good to see you. Good to see you too. And Liv, thanks for doing our Twitter feed. Are we still ahead of Charlie Sheen? Yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Suck that, Charlie. Your days are numbered. You're over, buddy. Anyway, um, I'm Dr. Shane. Until next time, have a fantastic and hopefully not too wet Sunday, and we will chat to you again about some more science next week. You're listening to 3 Triple R. This has been a podcast from 3 Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.